From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. It's daunting to think of how long COVID may be with us, but there can be comfort in company. So we continue to ask Coloradans, how you doing? Today, a massage therapist who loses work every time she's exposed and must wait for test results. I still want to be doing massage, but a lot of massage therapists quit. So it's kind of like the same thing that all the other industries are experiencing. Then health reporter John Daly searches for why COVID is so bad in Colorado right now. Plus, the cost of airline tickets is taking off. And a Grand Junction couple, both vocal instructors, who say singing's for everyone, even though it doesn't feel like it. You know, here we, we see somebody singing while they're walking down the street, and you're like, oh gosh, what's wrong with them? You know, they're, <laughs> they're, they're, they're not right in the head. I donated my car. I donated my car. I donated my car. I donated my car to CPR. I needed a new transmission and a lot of other work. This was a great way to make a large gift. It was a car that we had loved. It was time for it to go on to its next life. It was time for the car to get off the street anyway. I knew that it would make me feel okay about saying goodbye. And it was time to give it to a good cause. All I had to do was fill out a form online. Somebody gave me a call and they came and picked it up. It's easy to donate your car at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. COVID isn't just a crisis, it's an era. That's how another show on this network, The Takeaway, put the times we're living in. And I thought it captured perfectly the road ahead, which seems to continue into the horizon. It's something massage therapist Carrie Bowman can identify with. She lives in Castle Rock, practices in Denver, and she reached out to us recently sounding, what's the word, exasperated. Well, it seems like a lot's on your mind right now. What's going on? Well, I mean, I'm a massage therapist and, you know, I spend multiple hours in massage rooms with people at close contact, zero social distancing. And um, I'm always having to take off work, you know, and it's so, fr- and like right now I'm waiting on a test because I was exposed and. I don't feel good right now either. So, you know, but it's just frustrating because it's like, I I mean, I should preface it by saying I did get the help that everybody was providing for business owners and it's running out. (laughs) So, um, you know, massage therapists don't make a ton of money anyway. And then you just feel like you're letting your clients down all the time by having to cancel. Gosh, I can't tell you how many days I've had to take off work due to either exposures or me not feeling 100% on a day that I might normally go ahead and go into work. But now with COVID, you can't. Help me understand what it is to be a massage therapist in a pandemic. So do you wear a mask? Does the client, I mean, the client is often face down, but not always. So do they wear a mask? So I didn't go back to work until July. People had to wear a mask all the way until like, what was it, maybe May this year when CDC said we didn't have to, which I thought was jumping the gun. But They did have to wear a mask and even when they were face down and it was really hard for them, you know, and I had to turn a couple people away who wouldn't wear masks, but most people were really good about it. So from probably May to August, we didn't wear masks, but then I just started wearing them again because I saw the numbers starting to go up again and, and I was exposed in August by a client and luckily I had a mask on. Did the client? No, he didn't. Mm -hmm. And he was vaccinated and everything. And I didn't end up getting sick. So now I am wearing a mask all the time at work. I give the clients the option. 
because it's not mandated, but I wish it were mandated. Have you thought about whether this is the right line of work for you anymore? You know, I actually, during quarantine, I was thinking about that because I've been doing it for like 12 years. And and I just like having those four months off really made me realize like, no, I still want to be doing massage, but a lot of massage therapists quit. So it's kind of like the same thing that all the other industries are experiencing is like, I am so busy right now. I'm booked out like four. I used to be booked out like two weeks pre-COVID and now I'm booked out like four or five weeks. And then I'm constantly having to cancel clients because I have to stay home and go get a COVID test or whatever. And And that's because a client will tell you sometime after their massage, hey, Carrie, I need to let you know something. Yeah. And I've also gotten an exposure notification on the app on my phone one time. So I don't know who that was. And most of my clients are vaccinated. And you're vaccinated. Uh, And I'm vaccinated. I'm boosted. And again, that doesn't mean you won't get COVID. It just means if you do, you're very, very likely to stay out of the hospital. Right. Is a part of you daunted by how long the road seems to be? Yes. Yes. Especially with how high the numbers are right now. Like, it feels like it's never going to end. And it's frustrating because, like I said, like the money's going to run out at some point. And what if COVID's still going on? And, you know, I'm one of these crazy people who was following COVID since, like, December of 2019 um, in China. Like, there was, like, I don't know, 25 cases in China. And I was obsessed with following it because I was I just had this intuition that this is going to be bad. Oh, gosh. So you've been in a hypervigilant state for a long yeah. time, it sounds yeah. like. Yeah, yep. You say that you're busier than ever, but mm-hmm. but you have to cancel would you say week? Like how, how often are you canceling? I would say probably once a month for at least, you know, four to five days. It depends on how long it takes to get testing back. And, you know, I've gotten tested so many times. And actually before vaccine, I got tested almost every single week just to be vigilant because I don't want to show up on that list of outbreaks. <laughs> how would you say your mental health is right now? I'd say very stressed very stressed. You know, like, I mean, most, mostly kind of like a financial thing, but also like, I just feel bad having to cancel clients all the time. And even though most of them are understanding, I still feel bad. Like people need their massages right now. Like everybody's stressed. It's been really, really hard. You know, I think more people are getting massages now too, probably, because I just think the stress levels in the whole country are just up so high. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, my back's a mess. <laughs> the, the knots in my shoulders. What decisions are you making outside of, of work about exposure? So talk to me about the holidays coming up. So for this year, I just told my mom, I don't think we should get together with any any family. You know, maybe she and my her brother, my uncle, and I will do something. But I'm like, we well, shouldn't get together with the extended family. It's just too many people. And... Last year for Thanksgiving, I took two weeks off, you know, because I didn't want people to come into my office after they'd been with their families. But that was pre-vaccine. And then for Christmas, same thing. I took off from like December 23rd to January 15th because I didn't want people coming in. Outside the incubation period, basically. Yeah. Yep. Uh Carrie, thanks for talking through your life these days with us. Thank you. 
Massage therapist Carrie Bullman, she lives in Castle Rock, works in Denver. Good news, her latest test came back negative. As COVID wears on, we'd like to hear how you're muddling through. Or if you've made big changes, new job, new outlook, new struggles, email me, coloradomatters at CPR.org. That's coloradomatters at CPR.org to share your pandemic life with us. And be sure to join my colleague Nathan Heffel tomorrow for a conversation about weighing risks at this point in the pandemic, whether it's going to a restaurant, seeing a show, or riding a bus. So why is Colorado doing so poorly with COVID-19 right now? The state predicts there soon may not be enough hospital beds. Transmission and cases are also at dangerously high levels. CPR health reporter John Daly digs into what's driving this surge. I've gotten several emails from Coloradans recently asking about this. I called up one of them. Hi, Garrett. John Daly, CPR. How are you? That's Denver resident Garrett Westervelt. He notes Colorado is in the top 20 most vaccinated states, but... We seem to be doing worse than some other states uh, with, you know, somewhat similar populations. And it's not clear to me why we're doing as badly as we're doing. The answer is it's a constellation of things and there's no one simple explanation. The Delta variant is highly contagious. Coloradans are not vaccinated enough and they aren't fully practicing things like masking. And most of the Mountain West is also struggling. I asked Cal Berkeley's Dr. John Schwartzberg about it. The infectious disease expert has been following Colorado closely during the pandemic. He describes the state situation as perilous with the rising number of cases before the holidays, because the holidays aren't going to make it better. This surge has been building for months. As some other states have seen COVID case numbers drop, Colorado's curve shot up steadily, says Schwartzberg. It looks like it's just the Delta surge just hasn't ended in Colorado. And the fuel for that fire is coming in part from younger Coloradans. The bulk of the cases are in those under 40. Dr. Eric Samoz, an infectious disease expert at Children's Hospital Colorado, explained one impact of that. The Delta strain spreads through children, through schools, and into families. And we are seeing that. Families are being affected now from children bringing it home. Which is why the state is pushing so hard to vaccinate kids. While younger people make up the majority of cases, most hospitalized COVID-19 patients are still over 60. State epidemiologist Rachel Hurley says that's in part because the original vaccines are wearing off, especially in older adults, which highlights the value of boosters. And really bringing those immunity levels back up and protecting our most vulnerable individuals. CSU researcher Jude Bayham is with the state's COVID-19 modeling team. He says Colorado pushed vaccines hard, but the numbers of unvaccinated are still too high. It's got to be these pockets of, of unvaccinated you know, individuals interacting and, and you know, allowing the, the virus to still spread. That, that, that would be my best guess. His work spotlights that people are socializing more. It's showing up in the data. Since about mm, early September, we've, we've essentially been back to our pre-pandemic levels of mobility. And that has the biggest impact in places with lower vaccination rates. In Pueblo County, hospitals are jammed with COVID-19 patients. Dr. Chris Urbina is medical director for Pueblo's health department. We, as a community, became a little lax in terms of our physical distancing, maybe our hand washing and respiratory etiquette, as well as 
wearing masks. So how does Colorado change course and start to bring the spread of the virus back down? The Rockefeller Foundation's Samuel Scarpino says to rein in this ominous spike, it will take vaccines, yes, but also a real commitment by residents and people in charge to the COVID containment playbook. We know how to control SARS-CoV-2. It's masking, testing, you know, and then case investigation, tracing, isolation, quarantine. And now we have vaccines. I circled back with inquiring and vaccinated CPR listener Garrett Westervelt. He recently went to an indoor concert in Denver. It required proof of vaccination and urged masks. We know the vaccinated can still spread the virus, but inside he was one of maybe two people wearing a mask. You know, you're indoors in a in a theater with, you know, a thousand other people or 900 or whatever it was. So it was just striking. Models project the wave to keep rising for a few more weeks and potentially blow past last year's peak. But medical experts say it won't climb as dangerously high if people buckle down on measures known to curb the spread. I'm John Daly, CPR News. Way more people will fly this holiday season than did in 2020. The COVID vaccine's a huge part of that, of course. Plus, people are tired of staying at home. What might passengers expect? How about more of those cancellations we saw on Southwest and American? Might those be in store? Let's ask Mike Boyd, president of the aviation consulting firm Boyd Group International, based in Evergreen, Colorado. Mike, welcome back to the show. Thank you, sir. Good morning. First off, on the subject of things that are sky high, uh, let's talk about inflation. How's that affecting travel? And I imagine there's a lot of dimensions to that. It hasn't affected yet, but keep in mind the rebound in traffic that we've seen in the last year has been based mostly on leisure travel. I mean, uh, and that's wonderful, but leisure travel is the first thing that gets affected when the price of food at King Supers goes up or the price of gasoline goes up. We think the first quarter of next year is going to be a problem. In, in, in 2019, about 950 million people in plane flights. Uh, last this year, it'll be about 640. It's not even going to go to 800 this coming year, mainly because I think inflation is going to eat up an enormous amount of the dollars that would have been on airplanes. Uh, interesting. That is to say that when people have to spend more on groceries, they have less income to spend on tickets. Do we expect uh, fuel prices, for instance, and ticket prices to be increasing? I, I think so. I mean, right now, I mean, there have been some geopolitical issues with fuel that's kind of uh, shield us, shield, the, shield the American industry from higher fuel costs in the first part of this year. But they are going to go up. They've gone up 70 percent uh, since the beginning of the year. That means airlines aren't going to be able to offer those $69 fares to get to Orlando. It means it's going to be more expensive in all respects to fly. So that's another whole issue, and it's going to affect airlines as well as the consumer. But that's on the horizon. That's not necessarily affecting the cost of holiday travel? Well, a lot of holiday travel is bought in advance, and a lot of holiday travel is, uh, you know, one of those things people plan for early. Now, mm -hmm. a good indication is just this past week, American Airlines took their January schedule that they had filed and cut it by 20%, and they cut their February schedule by 20%. That's not staff shortages, that's booking shortages. When you say cut their schedule, meaning they reduced flights? They reduced, yeah, the amount of capacity that they were going to put out there. That's basically, yes, reducing flights. Uh, okay. So that means instead of eight flights a day between Chicago and Los Angeles, there might be four. 
that sort of thing. I'm glad you mentioned American because I think of American and Southwest and those big cancellations recently. Labor issues were at the heart of that. Airlines shrunk their workforces in the pandemic, then travel bounced back on routes where there just wasn't enough staffing and backup. Uh, Are the big carriers better positioned going into Thanksgiving and Christmas? Yeah, what happened there, those were one-offs. And when we say staffing, we're talking about cockpit and cabin crews. You know, the people on the ground aren't as badly affected. They don't cancel flights. If you don't have a pilot, they don't book it. But when something happens like happened to American, where its number one connecting hub got basically shut down for several hours, that flummoxes the whole system. And that means an airplane is stuck in Reno, Nevada, and the pilot runs out of FAA time and you got an airplane stuck there and passengers stuck there and it all snowballs. Mm -hmm. The same thing with Southwest when an air traffic control system went down for a while in Florida. Those are one-offs. I don't think we're going to face it this year. Although I will say somewhere in scripture, it is written that if there's going to be a thunderstorm or a snowstorm, it's a Friday afternoon over the Chicago hub. (laughs) Yeah. Anyone who uh, uses United may be well familiar with that. I think what I hear you saying is that the nature of pandemic flying is just that these systems, these airline systems are less resilient. Do you think that's true? Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're very resilient to a degree. I mean, for example, we don't have tickets anymore. We can get through an airport a lot easier. But because we don't have a lot of backup, when you do have a major shutdown, it takes longer for the airline to get back into a normal a normal situation. Mm-hmm. We can't do too much about that, but the, the, the event with Southwest and the event with American are really one-offs. But it does show that, uh, you know, we, we live in a world where, you know, a, a thunderstorm still takes priority over our, our traveling pleasure. You mentioned at the beginning that a lot of the rebound in air travel is leisure, uh, which makes me think that business travel is just not bouncing back to the same extent. Is that because we have all become used to working remotely? It accelerated something that was already going before we got the pandemic. I mean, a lot of short haul flying. It used to be there were 40,000 people a year flying between Hartford and New York. Today, nobody is. Why? We don't have to do it because air transportation has a different role as a communication channel than it did 10 years ago. Virtual meetings have taken over and eaten up a lot of that. So uh, the real issue with business travel is air transportation doesn't provide the speed of communication that other things such as virtual meetings have done. It'll still be there, but as a business tool, it has a lot less gumption, if you will. My understanding is that airlines made a lot of their money on those higher-end business traveler seats. So that that can't be good news for the industry. Yeah, it can't. It's incremental. It's not like a, an episodic event, but it, it is showing where, you know, the, the people in the front of the cabin or the people paying the last-minute fare, you know, $700 fare from here in Denver to St. Louis, which I heard the other day, there'll be fewer people doing that. And that means the airlines have to make up for that somewhere else. And they're doing it. They are adjusting down their capacity. Uh, you know, we're, we're still going to be probably at a, a new normal is going to be about 85 percent of what we had in 2019. Mike, before we go, I'm very curious your read on something. Denver International Airport has been uh, torn up because of construction for some time now. It, you know, it's a less than pleasant experience sometimes uh, to greet family at that airport and uh, perhaps to travel from that airport at this time. Do you think that actually affects who decides to fly out in just a few seconds? 
Not at all. Doesn't have any effect at all. Denver's doing the right thing, rebuilding and restructuring their airport for the future. You know, in, in six months, no one's going to remember any of that construction. They're just going to go through the airport. Are you traveling for the holidays? By car, yes. By car, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Mike, I appreciate your time as always. Thanks for the perspective. Have a good day, sir. Thank you. Mike Boyd, president of Boyd Group International. It's an aviation consulting firm based in Evergreen, Colorado. Around Montrose, Colorado, when you drive past the lush fields and orchards, it's easy to forget you're actually in a desert. Water is the vital ingredient, but hardly any falls from the sky. Instead, it's delivered by a tunnel, a giant one, more than a century old. CPR's Western Slope reporter, Stina Sieg, checked it out. I got a couple little lights here and a flashlight. It's up to you guys. My ride is what they call the tunnel limo. An old Chevy truck warming up before rumbling through the 5.8 miles of the Gunnison Tunnel and back. The trip happens every fall after the irrigation water is turned off. It's a time for workers to do an inspection and for me and a small group of visitors to see something cool. Lauren Dykeman, wearing his John Deere hat, got the invite from his daughter. This was Maria calling me up and saying... We got a chance to go through the tunnel. You want to do it? Oh, yeah. (laughs) Maria Nichols is sitting next to her dad on the bench seats in the truck bed. She just started working at the Uncompagre Valley Water Users Association, which maintains the tunnel. So this will be her first time through. I ask if she's claustrophobic. We'll find out. (laughs) We're a few miles from downtown Montrose, with not much around except for the farmland this tunnel sustains. We turn into a canal and inch through the shallow water. The west portal of the Gunnison Tunnel appears, looking like a train tunnel, like something you are not supposed to enter. Then we do. The truck's headlights shine on the narrow cement walls around us, 11 feet wide, 13 feet tall. During much of the spring and summer, this is entirely full. But now, we're driving through less than a foot of murky water. Maria, describe the smell. Musty. (laughs) And kind of fishy and briny, like the harbor I used to visit as a kid. Big drips from the ceiling slap down on our heads. And all the while, we keep heading down. Photographer William Woody points out the entrance far behind us. Now a tiny burst of light. There it is, just a dot. Yeah, I mean, we're basically going underground into the Black Canyon. The Black Canyon of the Gunnison soon thousands of feet above us. When the Gunnison Tunnel opened in 1909, it was the longest irrigation tunnel in the world. It provides water for thousands of people and farms. Lauren Dykeman jokes he's been waiting to see inside ever since he moved here 70 years ago. Everybody that lives here appreciates this tunnel because there wouldn't be hardly anything here without it. Not the fields of onions or wheat or the famed sweet corn. The tunnel walls alternate between smooth cement and jagged hard rock. 
like a black-and-white photo of an old-timey mine. We bump along, stopping a few times to clear debris. We found rocks. <laughs> After nearly six slow miles, we reach the tunnel's end. We stop, get out, and start walking through the dark. Thank goodness that truck is reliable. Then there's a door. As employees open it, a burst of wind hits Dykeman's poncho. Wow! There's light at the end of the tunnel. Illuminating the black canyon of the Gunnison National Park before us, with the deep green of the Gunnison River rolling past and huge rock walls looming above, a geologic marvel. Steve Anderson sounds just as impressed by the engineering marvel we just left. Oh, it's a beautiful spot in the world. It is. Despite the darkness and thick mud, Anderson just retired as the Water Users Association manager, a job his father held, too. Also a fourth-generation farmer, he knows exactly how reliant this area is on the very water we're looking at. The value of that tunnel for our valleys is, you know, a constant reminder of what our forefathers did for us. Using dynamite and mules and crude surveying instruments. Generations later, and 20 years into a historic drought, Anderson does not know exactly what the future of agriculture will look like in his community. But he has faith people here will figure it out. After all, they built this. Outside the Gunnison Tunnel, I'm Stina Sieg, CPR News. And Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour when you better sing for your lives. I'm Ryan Morner. You're with CPR News and KRCC. A more reliable CPR stream on your phone. An easy way to tell CPR what you're thinking. Better browsing. These are just some of the new and improved features of the new Colorado Public Radio app. To get the latest from CPR News, CPR Classical, and Indy 1023, update to the new version on your phone or tablet. Get the new Colorado Public Radio app in the App Store and in Google Play. Search for Colorado Public Radio. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. When we sing, we can find harmony with others. We can also give people a glimpse at the essence of who we are. Those beliefs are at the core of Sing for Your Lives, classes led by Grand Junction vocal teachers Graham and Stephanie Andouri. The classes are for those who may not think of themselves as singers, but who want to use their voices musically. And the Anduris, who are married and both have doctorates in this, used to teach voice at Colorado Mesa University. They left in 2020 to teach this different way of singing full-time. And welcome, Andouris. Thank you so much for having us. We're thrilled to be here. We are super glad to be on the show. You're indeed professional singers, uh, but in your world, singing is so much more than belting out a tune that would get Simon Cowell to approve you on American Idol. <laughs> That's a bit of an old reference, I guess. But what is singing to you, uh, Stephanie? I would say singing is not specific to any certain mindset. Singing, I would say, is just speaking with 
pitch contour and rhythm and dynamic contrast in an effort to uh, express something. But we differentiate between what we call transformative singing and impeded singing. And so that's really why we branched out of traditional music education, teaching at universities um, to pursue this, because we believe that when your emotional intention, your mental intention, um, and your vocal intention are all aligned to express the same truth or to find the same truths within yourself, it becomes a transformative process. Transformative mm-hmm. process. Yeah. Graham, help me understand those two terms Stephanie used, that, that kind of sure. contrast and philosophy. When she's talking about, trans, we, we talk about transformative singing. Yeah, versus, found, versus impeded, was that the word? Versus impeded, 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 yeah. Mm-hmm. Impeded singing is when you're singing, when you're, you're focused on everything about yourself. So, you know, I hope I don't screw this up or everybody mm-hmm. come see how good I am. You know, I, I have to get all the notes right. I have to be perfect with this. I have to make sure my technique is all lined up. When you're focused on all of these little granular things about how you are sounding or how you are doing, you have essentially cut off the ability to make any sort of connection with your audience. You're not really able to make a full impact on your audience that way. And therefore, it's not transformational for the singer and maybe not even for the audience. Or right. for the audience. Or especially. for the audience. And so, Absolutely. yeah, the idea of transformative singing, when we call, we've, we've developed something called the transformative singing process. And that's the course that we teach. The live class that we're teaching in Grand Junction here is called the transformative voice singing class. We're about to launch a course, an online course called Transformative Singing, um, Holistic Vocal Techniques. And it's really about self-discovery through learning how to use your voice. You learn about, at a much deeper level, you learn about yourself. And when you do that, you, you allow for a transformation of yourself that then engenders a transformation of the audience. And we, we talk all the time about performances that we've been to where we felt completely changed Hmm. by that performance Uh, in in all kinds of different musical styles. You you leave that performance different than you went into it. And that's really what we want to get people to understand. This is not just about um, making pretty sounds or distracting people from their problems for a little bit. This is about creating an opportunity for making the world a better place. You know, one person at a time, one audience at a time, one community at a time. Stephanie, it almost sounds like therapy. Oh, certainly there are therapeutic aspects of it. And I think most voice teachers would agree that that's a big part of what we do, not because we're trying to be therapists, but because singing and using our voices and discovering who we are at our most authentic cores is such a therapeutic practice. I tell my students when you're on stage there can be either a a gulf between you and your audience, or there can be a hologram of whatever reality you're trying to create for them to step into. And so until we are able to sort of remove all of the self-judgment and all of the things that very often go into singing, what we call impeded singing, you can't get to this place of transformational singing. So it really is a therapeutic process of sort of shadow work, of figuring out where you are in your own way not just using your voice, but um, through bodily awareness, through emotional awareness and expressive intention and awareness. You know, I think singing, and I made reference earlier, sort of jokingly, I guess not, to American Idol. Singing, to me, seems so professionalized mm-hmm. and, and that there's shame in a way for people who sing and yeah. don't sound good. You know, it's like you're either Whitney yeah. Houston or nobody. Unfortunately, that's become a, a really 
common understanding of not just singing, but, you know, a lot of things in our society, art, artistic endeavors have become kind of relegated to those who are naturally good at them. If you're mm -hmm. not good at it, then you just leave that to the people who are, you know, um, we, we talk about all the time. We have a, a friend that we went to grad school with. Um, he grew up in Ghana and he would talk about getting onto the city bus. Somebody would just start singing. And then by you know the end of the bus ride, everybody was singing. Everybody was best friends, even though you'd never met these people before. Aww. And you just sang all the time. If there was any possible reason that you could sing for something, you just sang. And you know, here we we see somebody singing while they're walking down the street, and you're like, oh gosh, what's wrong with them? You know, they're <laughs> they're, they're they're not right in the head. I mean, I got goosebumps at the thought of yeah. it. And and of course, I think back to the time when. People did sing communally. There was union singing and kind of solidarity mm -hmm. singing and these union songbooks and singing in beer halls. Uh, yeah. Stephanie, is that the kind of culture you'd like to bring back? Absolutely. Absolutely. We hear all the time, like if Congress sang before every single meeting, if they sang America the Beautiful. There's so much science to back this up, too. It's not just like, oh, this feels good to uh -huh. sing. It feels good to sing together. But there are is endless amounts of science to back up why that is. I mean, it creates oxytocin, which is this social bonding hormone or social bonding chemical that our bodies produce that makes us feel like part of a community. It makes us feel like we're part of something larger than ourselves. And then beyond that, some of the science that we've started looking into and discovering is it's called bioenergetics. And it's how your body actually, especially your heart, creates this electromagnetic field around your body that your emotional state is encoded within the vibrations of that electromagnetic field. Hmm. And other people's bodies pick up on that. We, we actually, when we talk about feeling somebody's vibes, um, that's actually a real thing, it's measurable. And when we sing and we're in this sort of transformative singing mindset where we're really emotionally intentional and vulnerable and authentic with what we're portraying, that is not just beamed out to the audience through our voices. That's beamed out through the audience through this energetic way, this electromagnetic field that your body creates um, and then receives from other people. Could we demonstrate? I mean, I feel like we're talking a lot about singing, but maybe we should do some singing. I'm, yeah. I'm willing to get a little vulnerable with y'all. I'm wondering if our uh, audio engineer, Michael Hughes, would join. Will you join, Michael? Mm. No. Test, test, test. Does this go to the recording? Does it go? Can you all hear me? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I hear you. Oh, sure. You'll be vulnerable <laughs> with me? Let's do it. Okay. Wonderful. Is everyone comfortable with this little light of mine? Oh, oh yeah. Th this little Perfect. light of mine. Yeah. Cool. So as you're singing this, your, uh, your mind is going to want to pull you into a place of, oh my gosh, what if I mess up? What okay. if I sound ridiculous and all these people hear me? Instead of allowing yourself to sort of marinate in that, allow your focus to go outward into the joy that you feel at sharing people's stories, at uh, connecting with Colorado, and at the joy that you spread throughout the state, which we're so grateful for, by the way. Oh, that's kind. Okay. Uh, you want to start on, on one? What are we doing? Well, if we sing with you, we're, we might get a little bit of lag time, so... What if we listen to you sing and we'll sing? Oh, oh. man. <laughs> okay. Michael, on one? Sure. Okay. Three, two, one. This, this little light of mine, 
I'm gonna let it shine, this little light of mine. I'm gonna let it shine, this little light of mine. I'm gonna let it shine, let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. Wonderful. Beautiful. Wonderful. Thank you for sharing uh-huh. that part of yourself. So with us. I'm curious, what did what was going through your head as you were singing that? Michael? That song always takes me back to a sing-along. Uh, I mean, I grew up with that song like so many people do. So I have lots of associations with it. But uh, right there, it went to a gospel brunch I attended at the House <clears throat> of Blues uh, many years ago. And the performer was going around the restaurant and encouraging those of us. In attendance to sing along, and mm. that's what we did. So it Very took me cool. right back to that place. It makes me think of the movie Karina Karina with Whoopi Goldberg mm-hmm. because that song appears in Karina Karina. Yeah. But yeah. in terms of the experience of singing it, Michael, I felt far less vulnerable singing it because you were singing with me. Absolutely. Yeah. That f- felt great. And Safety in numbers. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's one thing I noticed. And then it was nice to have our guests, and, and if you're just joining us, this is Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're speaking with Graham and Stephanie Andouri of Grand Junction, who are really trying to get folks to sing in a different way. They were at Colorado Mesa University, have now dedicated themselves, uh, both as doctorates in voice, to this new idea of singing for your lives. But I think having your permission not to sound excellent... <laughs> Right. Oh, I thought we sounded excellent. We sounded you excellent. You did. You sounded yeah. beautiful. But really, singing is our birthright. Yeah, having that permission was amazing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It changes it. It changes everything about how, where our focus goes. Mm-hmm. It, it is. Singing is our birthright. It's not just for the people who are professional at it. It's not just for the people who have spent their lives doing this. We really all have the ability to benefit from using our own voices and to free ourselves in so many beautiful ways. One of the things we, we'd say all the time is when you sing, whether it's for yourself or for your, you know, you're singing a lullaby to a kid or you're singing for 5,000 people at Carnegie Hall, uh, it's really about the connection that you make rather than the perfection that you are hoping to achieve. Right. So connection over perfection yeah. is the way that we describe that. And that's not to say, I mean, we address technique. We definitely deal with how our bodies work oh. and have people explore different ways of using their voices. We're really technicians when we're teaching voice, but the technique serves a greater purpose. The technique is not just to sound your best. Mm-hmm. It's so that you can get out of your way without the fear of, you know, cracking a high note or whatever it is that you're afraid might happen so that you can share yourself and express yourself more fully. I have to think that... <sighs> Singing is a little more fraught these days because of the pandemic. There there was that, now, I don't know, I I think it's an infamous case in the Northwest where, I mean, essentially a singing event became a kind of super spreader event. And it was one of of our first clues that COVID-19 was spread through the air and through droplets. Yes. You know, there's almost a, a danger in some settings, perhaps, to singing. Oh, certainly. Yeah. How have yeah. you How have you navigated that? I know you've been doing some Zooms stuff. Yeah, it was it was really tough in the singing world. There was some, there was this thing that sort of became known as the webinar heard around the world. That um, I think it was in May of 2020, 
that there was this big panel discussion of all these professional singing organizations with some epidemiologists. And basically they'd said, we probably will not get to sing together again for another at least 18 months. And it was just, you know, it was a huge punch in the gut to every singer and voice teacher and choir director in, in the world, really. And so, you know, we've, people have gotten really creative at, at you know, coming up with ways to do choir online on, on Zoom or on Google Meets or whatever, you know, whatever it might be. Um, but it's still, there's no substitute for actually being in the same place and singing together with one another. But yeah, I mean, it was like all of a sudden this thing that's supposed to be this very healing, you know, that's a balm for the soul is singing is something that is near and dear to so many people became like public enemy number one. Mm-hmm. And so now, now that people are masking, um, we don't sing with, when people are not unmasked um, and that people have been vaccinated. It really, really allowed us to come back together and make music together again. It's still not, you know, a hundred percent perfect. We have breakthrough cases and, and things like that, but it allows us to reconnect mm-hmm. without quite as much fear. Well, I'm curious how, you arrived at this place in your lives. Mm. I, journalists so often want the epiphany, the the magic moment. It, was there a magic moment, Graham, for you, Stephanie, for you, that made you realize just what the power of singing could be? Yeah. Yes. There were sort of, I think, probably a series of moments. I've been, since I was maybe 18, trying to figure out why I do this. Like, why, why do you, one of the questions we ask everybody that we work with is why do you sing? Hmm. And it's something that I think a lot of people don't always think about. They just, they know that they feel good when they sing, but what is the real purpose behind what you do? And that sort of has been the driving question for what we do with Sing for Your Lives. But I think for me, one of the biggest pivotal experiences was uh, in 2015, I took a choir, I was directing a chamber choir and uh, we went to Romania and we had a, a couple, a number of life-changing performances. And when we were in Romania, we, we performed for a men's prison, a, a you know, group of inmates at a men's prison. Oh, wow. And we performed for a group of disabled children that, that, that lived at a nursing home. They're, they were basically, for all intents and purposes, they were orphans. And it was really clear to me after doing those performances that music was this incredibly powerful force for creating connections and dissolving divisions among people. We had so much that we could have said, you know, you're different than us and therefore you are scary and we don't want to have anything to do with you. But when we started singing, all of a sudden, all those superficial differences ceased to matter and we recognized our shared humanity with these people. Hmm. And we recognize that they experience the same emotions that we do and they have the same hopes and dreams and fears. And it created this intense sense of shared humanity and connection that really, for me, um, that, that brought into a very clear perspective what, what my purpose was as a singer, as a music educator, as a human being. That prison story is such a Johnny Cash moment. My goodness. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, Stephanie, how would you answer the question about, you know, your epiphany? Yeah. So I think I had a big epiphanal moment um, in uh, 2017. We were both invited to sing as, um, as featured soloists at Carnegie Hall. And I had always struggled with big performance anxiety. I mean, even if I was doing a small concert, I always 
felt compelled to sing and I always wanted to be a singer, but I really struggled with uh, finding peace around performing. And mm. so certainly when you're singing in front of, you know, 4,000 people at one of the world's most famous concert halls, <laughs> the performance anxiety does not go away. And I was backstage. It was moments before I went on to sing my first aria. He was on stage singing his first aria. And it was like immense fear. And then all at once the fear turned off. And I realized that in order to be afraid of making, you know, of singing for people, I had to be afraid that they were there to judge me. And I recognized that I had never been in an audience with the, the intention of judging someone else mm. that anytime I went into an audience, I went with the hope that I would be transformed, that I would be uplifted and um, that I would leave feeling something new, understanding something new about myself and about the world. And so having that realization made me understand that it really wasn't about me, that being on stage wasn't about showing off how good I was or about making sure I didn't botch a high note or breathe in the middle of a phrase. It was really about building a connection with my audience and allowing them to experience joy, allowing them to get a glimpse of the story that I was telling and to uh, sort of relate to me in some way. Mm -hmm. And as soon as I did that, it was, there was just this mutual appreciation that we fed back and forth. It was palpable. It was this amazing energy and I felt really grateful for it. And so that was what moved me into this new sort of paradigm. It's the power of getting outside yourself. But it's also, it occurs to me, um, my dad says a lot, when you get, are in fear, when you are in a, any emotion, jealousy, just get into service, be of service. Yes. And what I hear you saying is that when you thought, how can I be of service to this audience? Uh, that was the transcendent moment. Uh, before before we go, do you both sing when you fight? I'm curious, like if singing helps your marriage. So no one believes us when we say this. We are the weirdest couple. We never fight. I think we've had like <laughs> I think we could probably count the number of fights we've had in 15 years on the fingers of one hand. Okay. Um, but we do sing all the all the time. <laughs> we do have we do have we've sung duets or we've sung operas where we we fight while we're singing. <laughs> Well, why don't why don't you leave us with both of you singing? Michael and I will rest our vocal cords and, and, and let <laughs> sure. you let you take us out. Absolutely, right. we do the same one. This one yeah, we one? can do the same one. Oh, good. Yes. All and right. what are what are your associations with this song before we hear it? Mm. For me, I think it means share your spirit. It share your essence. It means be unimpeded by the fears that are holding you back from being vulnerable. Right. You know, one of the classes we teach is called Let Your Voice Be Heard. And it's that. I mean, it's, it's, it's getting rid of the idea that you don't have something valuable to offer, that you don't have anything valuable to share. Yeah. All right, Graham and Stephanie with this little light of mine. Right. This little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm gonna let it shine. Let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. Shine on, guys. Thank you. Thank you so much. Graham and
And Stephanie and Dury teach what they call Sing for Your Lives classes online and at the Grand Junction Arts Center. They both hold doctorates in vocal performance and pedagogy. Thanks to the chorus that makes Colorado Matters sing. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. Andrea Dukakis. Michelle Fulcher. Nathan Heffel. Matt Hers. Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Avery Lill. Pedro Lumbrano. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. And I'm Ryan Warner with special thanks to Nancy Lawful. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. Let that light shine. This is listener-supported Colorado Public Radio. Thanks for spending time with us.